So there's a kind of a discrepancy here. On one side, we need to innovate and we need to think creatively outside the box. But what we already know how to do is exactly what is blocking us from thinking outside the box. Unmute, the podcast from Design Up. We will feature issues that bother us, inspire us, or intrigue us designers. Subscribe to Unmute, where you get your podcasts, and enjoy the ride. Now, over to our host, Shiva. Hello. So today we are talking to a gentleman who is an expert in digital products. His talk and workshop at Design Up 2018 made a good impact. His insights in problem solving and creative thinking has earned him fans all over the world. This conversation is about everything from comfort zone, new methodologies, kindergarten, and of course, what's for dinner. On a rather pretty pandemic day, we spoke to each other, me from home in Bangalore, he from his house in Tel Aviv, and I completely enjoyed the conversation. Over to Jonathan Levy. Here you go. Okay, so I'm Jonathan Levy. I'm a product manager for the last 15 years. I started out as a user experience professional. I did this for about five, six years. Uh, very intensely, and then very naturally I transitioned uh, to product management, uh, but very soon uh, I joined a startup uh, today called uh, openweb.com, uh, which was then uh, only five people. Today it's uh, pretty large. Then uh, I, was, I became in charge of this product. Uh, I was VP product uh, there. Um, then I joined uh, Sears.com, a corporation, where I was a group product manager. I was in charge of the product group. Following that, I co-founded a company called Stads. It's a marketplace where, uh, uh, for advertisements in football. And today, I'm VP product at a company called The Floor. Uh, it's a fintech company. And we're building a, a product for banks, uh, which is to accelerate innovation inside the organizations. Uh, along with this, I'm also uh, consulting and working with, uh, with uh, companies like Tabula and Google, also in the space of user experience and product management. And uh, yeah, that, that's more or less uh, my story. Right. And... Um... In these 15 possible years, I, I'm sure there are like caselets that will illustrate where design made a difference. Uh, can you tell us stories of those? Yeah, for sure. I think that, you know, there, there's a lot of, you know, think about what, what is good design. Okay, what's an innovative design? Uh, so many people would define it very differently. 
uh, and designers changed a lot during the the last uh, decade. And the more I, I the more teams I experience and products and the industries, uh, I think that good design is actually an enabler for the entire organization because when the design is crisp and clear, and it doesn't need to be fancy, really. It doesn't need to be very sophisticated. So I think when the design is good, it's clear, it's bright, it's an enabler for the entire organization to move faster and to develop faster. And, and it serves as a common language. I saw that when the design is messy, when the style guide is not clear, when components are, uh, are not reused properly and modulated properly, then processes take so much slower. And the time is everything in tech. So, um, you know, in my teams, the teams that I manage in design, I have this, uh, they know that, uh, I always tell them that uh, I want the design to be like a pharmacy, you know? that it should be so tidy and so arranged that you can smell how, how sterile it is, okay? So this is how I think a good design looks like and feels like. It's an enabler all across. It enables the, the product to, to deliver. It enables to the developers to deliver faster and less being dependent on designers and products, but being able to be more independent. And it's actually, it's a, it's, it becomes a huge sort of like particle accelerator. And I think that it, it, it stems from, from a good design and good design management and collaboration. So, uh, so yeah, this is, uh, you know, when I see those kind of things, it's uh, something to keep. And if it's not there, uh, then it's always a goal to, to strive for. So what would you say that designers and product companies should, three things, start, stop, and continue? What should they start doing? What should they stop doing and what should they continue doing? So, so to start doing for sure would be to, to create this design pharmacy, like I call it, you know, to have, a, a, let's say, a hyper-organized style guide and component modulations and uh, elements across the organizations and across teams, this is a definitely something that uh, I put a lot of my efforts into this and I find this 100% rewarding uh, over time. Sometimes it takes even a year to reach the, the level of organization uh, and tidiness in the design. But then you can just, you can just run so fast with more features, that it's just simply worth it. So this is something to, to uh, no doubt, I would recommend to start. Something to stop, trying to over-sophisticate design, trying to come across as innovative by over-complicated design elements, having or having a, um, many shades and many styles of the same thing, which are kind of like were, were 
were uh, created by preferences of historic people or were in these historic roles, you know, and carrying it uh, with you. So, so I think I, w- I guess what I'm, what I'm saying is that to, to stop looking for sophistication and innovation through design, but having design being the foundation of tech and product innovation, an enabler for it. So it's not uh, use it as a means, use design as a means for it, but not as like an end for it. So this is a recommendation. And the third thing is to, uh, to continue doing. Well, I'm seeing more and more companies collaborating team. Uh, I'm seeing the collaboration flows uh, between teams becoming more tight. In more companies, the teams are structured that designer is a part of the product and R&D team. Uh, so this is this is something that a, a great trend that I think this is uh, uh, the way the way things should be. Designer working organically with product managers and the developers, um, and not being like uh, not having a studio uh, inside the organization, but actually being across across team uh, and a cross functional uh, enabler inside the company. Excellent. So I know that there's a pet um, issue, if I can call that, that you have. You always say that people don't define their problems well, right? So so the entire idea of uh, justice is done when the problem is defined well, and you actually have your own solution for it. What's it what is it called? Just introduce us to your solution for that yeah so so you know it's more that uh, uh, not necessarily that problems are not defined well because you know some people can define problems but it's about two things it's about first of all the, the our own human tendency to jump to a solution very very quickly uh, and our pull natural tendency to innovate, you know, and to think of a new idea. When in fact, most of the cases, a new idea is not needed, not needed at all. And uh, sometimes even great innovation can come through adjustments. Doesn't need to be like a new algorithm, a new user experience, a new concept, you know. Uh, And this is kind of a let's say, a mental bug that we all have, you know, this kind of, because uh, it's fun, you know, it's so, so fun to, to, to think of new things and, and fly away and invent and imagine things, you know, so it's tempting and it feels productive. But at the end, what I've seen again and again is that in many cases, you don't reach where you wanted to reach when you go through such a process. And all of this, which I just told you, is just amplified when you're doing this in a group. You know, I've seen so many meeting rooms that somebody comes up with a problem and then less than five minutes into the meeting, people start to throw ideas, you know, hey, let's do this, let's do that, let's do this, you know, and start to ping pong ideas off of each other. And uh, it's addicting, you know, so everybody is in it. Uh, and, and, and very soon, you, the walls, the whiteboards are filled with ideas. 
Now you need to narrow down, but now it's very complicated because you have people who are invested in those ideas. So the, the manager of this meeting or the person in charge needs to narrow down and keep everybody satisfied, which I've just... 99% of the cases, it's just a total disaster at the end. And what I mean disaster is that we end up defining a solution which makes everybody satisfied, but it's kind of a very strange creature of a solution, you know, not very sharp. It's just it made of percentages of all the solutions that uh, were raised in the room. And it's delivered out to the customers. And it just doesn't move the needle that you want it to move. Uh, and, and this process that I've seen over and over again, uh, it just blew my mind, you know. How can we think of a system? And I try to think about a, a, a repeatable, systemized way to avoid this kind of pitfalls. Obviously, it's not our fault that we fall in this trap all the time because there are very strong forces that happen in a meeting room. There is the seniority uh, aspect. There is uh, a, the fear of judgment. People don't want to judge to be judged for their uh, least best ideas. Um, there is the personality, different personalities. Some people take the stage for much longer, and the more uh, introverted people wait for their turn to speak, and sometimes they don't get their turn to speak uh, by the time the meeting is over. So many forces at play, you know that. The, the actual problem we're here to solve just becomes the, the secondary, the minor aspect in this whole thing. It's just managing a queue of people speaking more than actually solving a problem. Uh, and yeah, and you know, it, it, uh, in a way, it, it really frustrated me because I felt we can do better. And I tried to look for patterns in a way to systematize, in a repeatable way, these processes in groups but also when you're thinking alone, you know, it's very easy to get lost. And one of the, one of the core elements that I found as a, as a pitfall is that we invest most of the time in defining solutions and very little, little time in defining the problem. And this is the high-level pr premise that, they, that enabled me, that sparked this whole uh, methodology and framework for me. And when I say, okay, now the first shift we need to do is to spend most of the time on the problem. And what I found out is that when you do that, on when you define the problem very, very well with granular components and you give them the necessary names and you grow through this methodology that I will tell you about in a minute, then the solutions just present themselves, emerge like some kind of magic. Uh, and basically having a method is the, is the, is the essential difference between an amateur and a pro, right? A pro has a method. So once we do it methodically, um, the, the most of the solutions just rise by themselves and in many times they don't require reinventing the wheel okay because most of the time we're not working on the new AI or the new 
a blockchain or something of this scale, right? We're just using things that already exist in the world and adapting them. So the, the, the method goes like this. Now, I said, okay, we, we need a way, we need some kind of methodology. How do we spend most of the time on the problem? Like, like Albert Einstein says, when I get a problem to solve, I spend, nine, uh, I spend 55 minutes on the problem and five minutes on the solution. Okay, now the next question is, what do you do in those 55 minutes when you spend on the problem, right? Uh, so for this, I created the five steps, which overall I call the methodology problem hacking, okay? Because it's like taking a problem and hacking it and finding the seed inside and building up from there. First of all, validate it exists, okay? But maybe it sounds very simplistic, but most of the problems that we pursue end up not really existing many times, or they exist, but in a different form than what we originally thought. Okay, so the very first thing, the very first question I ask about any problem is what proof do you have that the problem exists? And a proof needs to be something measurable. Numbers is a proof. And you can find the proof for anything, even very vague things like leadership or creativity, or there needs to be a number that all of us can look at this number and say, yes, this is true. Okay, this number is correct. And we agree that we will come back to look at this number after we deploy the solution. This will be our metric to indicate if we were successful or not. Now, already, this creates an amazing alignment between people because you make sure that people are talking about the same thing. Okay, so you have a validation. You validate the problem exists. People talk about the same thing. Of course, half of the people just leave the room because they understand that uh, we're talking about something different than what they thought. In about half of the cases, what I'm seeing is that you discover that the problem doesn't really exist. Okay, so this is a very important step. Then in the next step, you need to go to the analyze step, the second step. And in this step, you want to ask, why is this occurring? Why does this number look like it, like it is? And simply raise assumptions. You can have four, five, six, ten assumptions of why do you think this, is, this number looks like it does. Once you have all those uh, uh, several assumptions, we go on to the third step where we want to detect only one possible cause that is the root cause. Okay, because not all causes were born the same. Some causes, if we solve them, influence other causes. And um, some are stronger and some are uh, needle movers. Some are just like symptoms that can, be, that can be solved but will not solve the core issue. Okay, so the next question I wanna, we want to ask here is which cause, if we solve it, will, would influence the others, the other causes. And sometimes there is only one thing that if you solve it, all the other problems disappear, okay? So when you have, so after, up until now, just to recap, we have a validation, which is a symptom, okay? It's a number. Then we have a list of possible causes. 
Uh, and then we want to identify by one root cause by detecting what necessarily must be true and would influence the other causes if solved. And the next phase would, would be to define what we need to do in order to mitigate it. Okay, now, here beware because I'm not saying how we're going to mitigate it. And there's a huge difference. I'm just saying what needs to be done. Okay, so if we will talk about what needs to be done for mitigation, uh, we will reach an alignment much faster than if we ask, okay, how are we going to do it? Because when we're talking about how, so each one has different ideas, and the discussion goes to uh, who is smarter, <laughs> right? But if we talk about what we want to, what we need to do generally, then we're talking about a common pain. And when we're talking about a common pain, something we both have the interest, interest to change, then you get much more engagement from everybody. Okay, so what needs to be done? Not how it needs to be done, but only what needs to be done. Okay, now, once we are aligned with a group of people on what needs to be done, and it stems from a very specific number, and we saw so we didn't get lost. We were very methodical here. We, never, we didn't invent the wheel on anything. So basically, we are defining what we're looking for, okay? And this is where you can open up the process to more people. Okay, so if anybody can think about how we can achieve this, now we can brainstorm. But this brainstorming already starts from a place where everybody's aligned. Everybody's looking for the same thing. You know, think about um, if I asked you, uh, Shiva, did you see my pen? And you would tell me, hey, Jonathan, I don't know. What does your pen look like? And if I would describe to you what my pen looks like, you would say, oh, yeah, here it is. Of course. So exact same here. There is no use to go brainstorming if you don't know what you're looking for. Because it's just like sailing in the ocean with no compass. It's fun, but uh, you have no direction, really. So this is a preliminary step that uh, product teams and user experience teams should always apply before brainstorming. This is the very core. You know, if you don't, if you don't, don't have this, then any brainstorm is pretty much a waste of time. Okay, what are we looking for? You know, sometimes in the, I don't know, in the, in the building, in the neighborhood, some neighbor could say, hey, my cat was lost. Uh, can you help me find my cat? Now, first, first thing you would ask is, okay, how do, does your cat look like? Once they tell you that their cat is a redhead and has a blue collar, then you know what to look for. And when you find it, you say, hey, of course, here it is. Same here. We need to align everybody's brains to look for the same thing. And this is a way to do it. Okay, now, once the brains, everybody's brain power is aligned to the same spot, then if something relevant comes up, everybody will be able to spot it. Hey, yeah. And it also mitigates a lot of the pitfalls I, I mentioned before, you know, the seniority and the personalities, because what we did now, this kind of mini process, was very transparent. You know, when you have a, a five, ten people doing this process together, everybody was part of it. Uh, then it, it, um, 
it uh, also mitigates those pitfalls, you know, because elements like personalities and seniority and uh, fear of judgment, things like this, uh, they, they all, they all um, are reduced when something right comes up because everybody knows what we're looking for. So this, so this step, you know, when you do it, it doesn't, it, it's not in place of brainstorming. It just comes as a preliminary step to enable effective brainstorming. And believe me, you do this, your brainstorming will be much more effective and much faster. And you are increasing the chances of actually achieving the result and the impact uh, you're looking to achieve. Uh, so this is a high-level uh, description of this uh, methodology. And I call it problem hacking. And I live by this methodology. Okay, I practice it also at family, uh, in my family, at home and everything, but not, not only at work. <laughs> so how does it work with family? Let's, let's hear that. It's a good story. It's a little bit more complicated, Shiva, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's right. a little bit more complicated. But for sure, with all my uh, uh, products and all my clients, this is what I do again and again and again. And now I have more and more teams uh, applying this also without me. And I'm getting through LinkedIn a lot of messages and, and, uh, and uh, letters that, uh, that uh, people tell me about success stories, you know, how this actually made a lot of organization and, uh, and help to narrow down to an effective solution. And you you also run workshops for people to help them kind of identify this, right? Like for professional students, you did one for Design Up, which was uh, a great success, and everybody loved it. And and yeah, yeah. Also, it was it was uh, great for me as well. So, is is there a difference between um, a consumer product using problem hacking for a consumer product versus? using problem hacking for an enterprise product. What are some, you can probably use some anecdotal examples to kind of talk us through this. Yeah, so I think that the, the, best, the major difference between B2C and B2B products is the fact that B2B products needs to, need to show ROI very, very fast upfront. Okay, because what are B2B products there for? They're... They, they exist to help people do their job better, right? So, so when you do, when you solve any problem for businesses, uh, you need to show the ROI, ROI up front. So the solutions and the mitigations and essentially the, the root causes you would choose to focus on are the ones that are related to money. And the ones that are related to, well, money in the long run, but can be related to performance, to human resources, to time efficiency. Everything is related to money uh, at the end. Uh, while uh, when you do this for a B2C uh, product or problem, then uh, you can be more focused on softer things like uh, people using your product because it, it gives them pleasure, because it's fun. Right. Nobody at work, you know, where is also busy at work. Nobody at work uses a B2B product uh, that is just fun. It has to be ROI. 
It has to be effective. It has to make you, uh, 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 enable you to execute your work much better. So, uh, so yeah, and, and also the, the metrics you, you want to look at would be different. Uh, because in B2C, you want to look, well, actually churn, you want to look at uh, users uh, churning both in B2C and B2B. Um, the difference is that in B2C, in B2C, um, the user is the one paying for the product. And in B2B, uh, the person paying is not actually the user, the end user. Just to, just to recap, so when you do a B2B, then you need to keep in mind the monetary aspect, uh, show the ROI upfront, and, uh, and consider the different types of users you might have. In the, when you do a B2C, uh, you, can, uh, you can focus on different things like uh, uh, having a fun product, a creative product. Uh, it doesn't need to have... Uh, a direct a money a efficiency, time efficiency, resource efficiency, and so forth. Cool. You also have another theory, which I love a lot. Like when you corner somebody, they perform the best. So which essentially, in other words, you say adversity is a trigger for creativity. Why do you think so? So yeah, this is uh, another kind of another bug maybe in our brain. <laughs> you know that on one side we hate to be pushed to the corner, right? Nobody likes it. It feels terrible. We try to escape it uh, as long as we can. Uh, but on the other hand, when we are uh, performing in our comfort zone, then we're essentially on, on autopilot. So there's a kind of a uh, discrepancy here on one side we need to innovate and we need to think creatively outside the box but what we already know how to do is exactly what is blocking us from thinking outside the box okay so if you're a designer and you're using a specific product for many years and people love what you're doing if you're using a specific software let's say for many years and people love what you're doing and so, so why would you change? You actually you have no reason to do any change in your, in your methodology. Over time, this superpower of yours uh, can become uh, uh, your, your Achilles heel, you know, your, uh, your, your vulnerability. Why? Because time has passed. Tools have changed. Software has changed. Methodologies have changed. What worked for you once sort of still works today but you already missed the train. And it might be sometimes too late. And I'm sorry to say that I've seen all these kind of things happen to people uh, on first hand, you know, people that I work with. So in order to avoid this as professionals, we need to all the time push ourselves to this place we just hate being at which is outside what we know how to do, outside the place where the rules are clear. Uh, so this is an enabler to, to, to think different, to think better when you don't know the rules, when you, where you don't know where you are 
and you feel this tight, your stomach tightening, you know, this kind of uh, wave of anxiety that we, that we run away from, this is, you, you should know that this is your money time. You know, it's not a something that tells you, hey, danger, run away. It feels like it, but it's not really what it means. It, what it really means is, hey, you have a green light. You're in the creative zone. You're now entering it. Now take one more step. Don't go back to the highway. Take one more step on this side road. See what happens. And take one more and relax. Okay? And this is when, you know, you, sometimes you can feel your brain igniting. While if you take the contrary, if you don't, if you're not aware of these thinking processes, especially in the fields that uh, we are uh, working in, user experience, design, your outcomes might be still in the realm of something we call like common, mediocre, okay? So this is, uh, you need to make a shift, to do the shift in your operating system and not in the, not in the specific software. Great. That, that's a good story. I wish all our listeners would listen to it and quickly follow through that stuff of embracing the non-comfort zone and, and stay in it. Stay in it for a while so that you get more creative. So what's the future of uh, product design and problem solving for technology products? New technologies, new interfaces, new dimensions like Corona that we are facing and working through this Corona pandemic. And there are future challenges too. So how do we get ready for all this? What is the future of this entire area? No, I think that the one conclusion that is for sure is true. Nobody knows what the future holds. But one thing is that we all learned from this corona period is that, uh, that uh, uh, anything can happen. You know, that, uh, that uh, working models can change, perceptions can change. Um, our, our, our wiring the way we think about the world can change so fast that that is uh, beyond imagination. But but one thing that that I've seen now recently with the whole uh, remote work is uh, is even stressing even more the 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 meaning and the importance of having systems and methodologies for work. And the good thinking needs restrictions. So now having this restriction when you can't even, you can't be in one room and you can't brainstorm freely and, uh, and conversations are very different uh, on remote, we need new methodologies. And this is the place where, where I think that uh, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of things will happen uh, next. You know, methodologies for creative thinking, methodologies for problem solving, and methodologies for anything that is related today as a soft skill. These are real skills, not soft skills. Each of those skills can be broken down to a methodology, to a model, to a model that can be repeated. And of course, it doesn't need to be perfect. Okay, just like the methodologies I presented, they're not perfect, of course. But are they better than what we do? You bet, yeah. You know, at least we have a method. 
Oh, you, you you said it right. I think the ability to structure things is uh, not a soft skill anymore. Ability to kind of bring in structure. Like even plays, like three-act plays that actually talked about context and conflict and resolution. Those are great sources of inspiration to even weave a story and talk, right? Like, to, So I think it's a, yeah, frameworks and methodologies are going to be future. And, and we've got probably built toolkits that actually help people do that stuff. And you have one. You have built a toolkit that helps people uh, problem hack, if I can use it. Tell us about that toolkit. What does it contain? What all does that toolkit contain? Yeah, sure. So, so this um, the toolkit that I uh, that can be downloaded on my, downloaded on my website. It has um, a worksheet that describes exactly the steps for problem hacking, like a but but even more in in more detail in a more visual way. Uh, so it's a great uh, way that it's a, it's a great worksheet. It's a great reference that you can use to to tackle any problem. Also, if you're alone or in a team, for me, in, for every meeting I go, I take at least some copies of this worksheet with me, uh, digital or physical. It doesn't matter, but but it provides a lot of uh, benefits and a lot of structures. This is this is one thing. I call it the problem hacking canvas. The second thing you can find on my toolkit is. Uh, is a, a, a guide for navigating uncertainty, which uh, brings much more research and much more details into the concepts I, I uh, we discussed uh, today. And uh, and um, if you're interested to dive deeper into this zone of uh, of uh, creative thinking and critical thinking, this is an essential pillar of this toolkit. And the third aspect is once you have an idea and you need to get people to, be, to, to, uh, to support you and to be enthusiastic about it, now how do you present your idea? Okay? Now, the best idea, if not presented properly, can seem as if it's not there. Okay? But on the other side, a mediocre idea, when presented brilliantly, can just inspire, okay, in an amazing way. So how do you present? What I've done is that I've reversed engineered uh, many presentations by, done by uh, uh, tech companies and great keynote speakers, and I've, I found some commonalities. And also here I created a model, a model and steps of how to build your presentations, how to tell the story, how to prime your audience in a way that would get them ready to hear what you have to say. And when things are structured this way, so you get a much, much better chance to, to lead people and to get people engaged with your concepts. So it's not enough to do the work. You also need to sell the work. You need to convince. You need to negotiate. You know? So this is a part of it. So three pillars in my toolkit. It's the problem hacking worksheet for solving problems. Navigating Uncertainty ebook uh, for creative thinking and uh, critical thinking and presenting ideas effectively to present your ideas and to engage people and inspire. So these three pillars, uh, I actually created a, a special uh, page for a design up community because I really am connected to this community and I love this community uh, and the people I met uh, over time. 
So this link will be available on the description of the podcast anyway. I will publish this in the part of the description of the podcast so it'll be kind of clear. Yeah. Excellent. So 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 there you can download uh, this toolkit for free. Uh, no charge, no payment, uh, simply a gift uh, to, uh, from me to you. So uh, you can simply download it there and I hope that it benefits you and feel free to 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 drop me a note and tell me how how you how you're using it in your professional life. But we have another deal. You have a book. Explain about the book. Talk about your book and we'll go and tell them what people get. Yeah, okay. So there's another deal. Uh, we have the Problem Hacking book. It's an e-book. It's a very condensed e-book. It's, it's 40 pages. It's uh, beautifully designed. Uh, and... Um, and it's, it's to teach you a problem hacking methodology in, let's say, one short flight. <laughs> okay, so uh, spend two or three hours, read the guide, okay, it's, uh, and, and uh, go through it. It has some uh, very useful uh, specific use cases and example and exercises. Go through the guide. If you're interested to learn about uh, solving problems more effectively and leading in this space, uh, then uh, I would love to gift this book uh, to anybody who will solve our challenge, right, Shiva? That's right. And I think the links and the email IDs will be available in the description. All you need to do is to go download the toolkit, challenge with three possible questions that we can actually find answers for. If Jonathan is happy with what you've got, you'll get books. You will get the problem hacking book for free, uh, which is a great gift, as you know. Jonathan, what's the time at Tel Aviv right now? Right now, it's four in the afternoon. It's four in the afternoon. What does your rest of the day look like? My rest of the day is picking up my uh, kid from the kindergarten. (laughs) Right. And how has how has things been in uh, so the kids are going back to school in kindergarten these days at Tel Aviv? Actually, now, uh, now uh, people are uh, the, the kids are they're thinking about closing the schools and the kindergartens again. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's kind of uh, it goes up and down uh, as in all the world, as in Europe uh, as well. Uh, but now that the vaccine is uh, up and running. And distributed already, so I hope that in uh, I'm optimistic. I hope that in two three months uh, we we would be able to to see the end of the tunnel. Okay, let's. I think close this with a very very happy question. What for dinner, Jonathan? What for dinner? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who knows? I think this is the biggest uncertainty that I have right now. <laughs> <laughs> that was Jonathan Levy from his hometown and his home in Tel Aviv. Go through the description of the podcast for all the details you heard right here. See you soon. This is Unmute from Design Up. I am the creator and host, Shiva Vishwanathan. Executive producers are Jay Datta, Narayan Gopalan and Shiva Vishwanathan. 
This podcast will not be possible without Rasagya Sharma, Prabin Pebam, Saloni Sabnis, Ripul Kumar and Dharmesh Ba. This podcast has been recorded at our homes with a Scarlett 2i2 third gen studio and Steinberg UR22C. It's edited on GarageBand and distributed with Buzzsprout. Thank you and till we meet again goodbye.